All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back to episode eight of Colonia Cast. We're already getting up there. It's only been about a month or so, and we got we got eight episodes. We stayed pretty consistent with that that week that uh, w- once a week schedule. Um, over here, it's seven o'clock in the morning, so I, I got a little commitment. <laughs> These guys have it a little easier, but um, we're we've got a really exciting episode and, and guest today. Uh, this is someone that. Uh, a lot of people know uh, in the past few years, he's really kind of uh, taken off on, on social media and started a YouTube channel that has gotten extremely popular uh, and is really doing an amazing job kind of spreading the word about turtles and tortoises. Uh, today, we've got Greg Brashear from Greg's Turtle Haven on. Uh, who's, he's going to talk to us all about some of the work he does uh, with, with his captive animals, uh, as well as some of the stuff that he's done in the field. Uh, and, and he's kind of all over the board. I think he's been in the, the turtle game for a while. Uh, and so we're, we're super excited to have him here and, and pick his brain about some of the stuff that he's, he's, he's learned over time. So welcome, Greg. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, for sure. This is, uh, this is awesome. We, uh, we've been saying this, but um, kind of all, all these initial podcasts where people that we're kind of high up on the list for people we want to reach out to and have a conversation with. And, and you were right up there. I mean, immediately when we started brainstorming this, like, yeah, we got to talk to, we got to talk to Greg cause he's yeah, just loaded well. with knowledge. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess this is kind of the, the cliche first question type of type of deal, but sort of why turtles, right? It's kind of a, as we said, kind of a, a niche area and, and, and a little bit of an odd interest, but we're all kind of united by it. So what first got you into them? Um, I mean, I, I wish I, I wish I had asked myself that, like, why turtles? Because it would, it definitely has changed my life. Um, I mean, I, I, for the most part, I've always had them around in my life. Uh, pretty, pretty early on, my dad uh, had an interest in box turtles, and he would drive around and after it rained or in the morning, and he would say, "Let's see if we see any box turtles." And we would do that. And then, um, being in Florida, there were. Uh, when I was there, I was kind of on the tail end of what people would refer to as the good old days when stuff was still abundant and you would still see native species. So, uh, from, from a very early age, every single day, literally every single day, Florida box turtles go for tortoises literally everywhere. Um, and then, you know, being Florida, every ditch canal, if there was, you know, a permanent body of water, there was cooters, snappers, soft shells, striped mud turtles. Um, so pretty much every day of my life, those were what was around. There was also snakes. I mean, I, I, snakes and all the other Florida stuff. Um, so I grew up with an appreciation of reptiles, but for whatever reason, I just always gravitated towards the turtles. And, um, I think from the first, I think it was the first Florida box turtle that I found crossing the road and I kept it overnight in a box and just kind of stared at it, you know, cause I was like super young. I was like maybe six or seven kind of stared at it for a while. And then we let it go and I watched it disappear into the palmettos and like kind of noticed that the way the shell was camouflaged and matched the way the light kind of dapples between the palmetto fronds. And so like, I just thought it was so cool the way it disappeared in there. And then um, I knew I wanted pet turtles at some point cause you know, you're young and you want to do that. And um I remember it was like if I got a good report card or something in second grade, um, I, I wanted a, there were, I had a science book and I had a picture of a painted turtle in it. 
I wanted this painted turtle more than anything. And I'd stare at the, the science book all day. And then, um, so for my birthday, I got to go pick out two turtles and they didn't have painted turtles. Um, so I got two red-eared sliders and they were Amos and Andy. I think my parents helped me name that. Um, it was like something from like a long time ago. And then um, eventually I got like a big aquarium and then we ended up uh, eventually getting, I got like a Western painted turtle and then um, map turtle. And then, you know, and then like my dad had a buddy that hatched out some peninsula cooters. So then I started raising up baby cooters. And then, and so all of that in addition to just what surrounded me every day. So that's kind of a long answer to a basic question, but. It's actually like a, that's a very similar response like that most people have. It's a, it's like a, like always something when they were younger and it was even similar for me. Like I, the first two turtles I had were red eared sliders. They were, uh, they're actually my neighbors down the street just showed up. They knew that I liked animals at the time and I would find box turtles in the yard and, uh, all the time, not, not as much anymore, but I used to live in like a pretty decent spot in the woods. So there would be box turtles every once in a while, but. I mean, they just, my neighbors showed up at my front door with a, like a, a pair of red-eared sliders, like a, a male and female. And I was like, all right. And I kept them for like five or six, six years. Now, did you take that interest in like reptiles and turtles and pursue it academically? Or has it always kind of been like on the side of like your main career sort of like I, I line think, or? I think I wanted to pursue it academically, but um, I mean, it, I graduated high school in 99. There wasn't a lot available back then as far as pursuing that kind of thing academically. I would have either had to, I think maybe UGA had a program and they, I know they still do, but um, I, I mean, to be honest in high school, like I, I, for me, I felt like I was in prison. So I was just trying to get out of school. Like, I mean, there were times where I wanted to drop out and stuff like that. And, you know, I was, I was focused on animals, but that was kind of, I kept that kind of more behind the scenes in my life. And a lot of the, what was going on back then was skateboarding. And so for, for most of high school, I just wanted to be out of school and skating and then, you know, in my free time mess with animals. But, um, so I, I ended up like not even having a call, a college plan. And then I ended up just going to school, um, to basically to satiate my parents. I went to school and got a degree in television, but I've always loved photography and video anyway. You know, because I, I started that because I was filming and shooting photos with my buddies skating. You know, we would just trade off, try, taking turns with the camera. So all of that ended up being what I went to school for and ended up being kind of more of like a career path. Um, I wish I had I wish I had been able to do the academic pursuit of it, but um, it just really wasn't in the cards for me at the time. Uh, but I've always like, you know, read the books and and. Uh, Kept it, I try to keep up with all that stuff as good as I can, but, you know. It's, uh, yeah, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, your work professionally as a wedding photographer, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I did through the 2000s. I mean, I did television shows, music videos, all of that stuff. And then now I've just, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed like just shooting weddings, like um, taking photos, doing video. I can do both. Um, and it's nice because for a while I had a job as like a valet at a VA hospital. So you're there at a hospital, which is the worst day of somebody's life. And like, that's such a heavy thing. And then when you shoot like a wedding, dude, that's the best day of somebody's life. So every time I work, it's a party. And 
I also have a new boss every single time I work. So sometimes you get an awesome boss and it's a good time. Then sometimes you get a boss that's kind of a bridezilla, but that's all good too. Like, cause as soon as it's over, you know, you're good. Um, so it, I enjoy it. It's fun. And, um, it's a really good creative outlet cause I can make them all kind of a little different or I can collaborate, especially if you get like a create a creative couple, you can kind of create, create something special, you know, custom tailored to them. Um, I watched a lot of like spaghetti Westerns when I was a kid. So sometimes I shoot weddings and I find myself shooting it. Like it's an old, like Ennio Morricone or, you know, like, like shooting it like an old spaghetti Western or something. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's actually, uh, that's how I want to pay off my college debts. <laughs> if I, if I could do yeah, that. Yeah. If, if you, it's, it, there's really good money in it and, um, you know, it's, it's never going to go away. People are always going to get married. It's, uh, it's interesting to see. I, I mean, I feel like that kind of goes toward the follow your passion. If you got multiple passions, sometimes it's easier to follow one of those things as a gateway into, into the other. And I think that you've kind of certainly, it seems like embody that in terms of bringing your experience and, and work with, with the camera to your turtle work, uh, through your YouTube page and your Instagram. Um, but I guess tell us a little bit about, um, I remember I, I've known you for a while on on Instagram, but in the past few years, you you started a YouTube channel that's gained a lot of traction, uh, and it's a pretty unique thing, right? You're doing both the captive side of things, but also going into the field and, and showing us kind of the, the 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 actual habitats and everything. And there's certainly a lot of crossover there. But tell us a little bit about how how did that kind of start up? Why what what made you want to go kind of take that out there and, and start a channel? I mean, I, I'd had, I mean, since YouTube started, I've always had some kind of YouTube channel. Like when YouTube first started, I had a channel that was just skateboarding and we would travel and go to really small like podunk towns. And the challenge was, can we find something to skate in the middle of nowhere? So that was kind of the first one I did. And um, I got used to kind of talking to the camera and, and doing all that goofy stuff. And then kind of through time, I ended up just having one that was more focused on just kind of a catch-all and it, it's literally just my first and last name so some of it's skateboarding some of it's harping some of it's whatever um and then i went greg whitstock who owns aquascape invited me to um pondemonium which is like their big you know uh, conference each year and it's all the builders that build ponds and all their new products and then they bring in youtube personalities and he invited me to come and help uh kenan harkin camp kenan we were supposed to go through all the turtles in their personal collection and health check them, ID them, you know, kind of go through the whole thing for a video. So it was like me and Kenan hanging out for like, I think three days or something like that. And Kenan was there, Blake was there. There was like a bunch of YouTubers. There were some people I'd, I didn't even really know, but it was kind of funny watching guys run around with cameras and talk to them and stuff. And then um, talking with Kenan, he was actually the one that encouraged me to pursue directly making a channel so if you want to give anybody credit for me making a channel it was him because he talked me into it because i wasn't really taking it that serious but it did look fun um so that's kind of where it came from and then you know the rest of it it's you know once you start doing it and you kind of have a purpose um for me like i'm a like kind of creative person so it was like okay how can i make each one progress can i make them get better as i go can i do things that are different and it's like the captive side is kind of i mean 
everybody and their dog right now is kind of beating that horse. So, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel on like anything I'm doing really. So, you know, I have the way that I like to keep things, which is outdoors and natural. And I work with a lot of native species because I essentially my goal is for them to live in my backyard as wild as possible. So, you know, I even take it as far as letting leaves accumulate in the bottom of the pond so it's full of leaves so that they have a, a natural thermal layer like they do in the wild. A lot of people will clean out their ponds because they don't like that look. Um, I personally like that. I like to go into my enclosures and not necessarily know where they all are. Or I like it when I don't see a turtle for a month or two and then he pops up and I'm like, hey, you know. So I like that. And so that's kind of my take on the captive keeping. And, and then there's already people doing the herping end, but nobody really specializing in turtles doing it. And, um, you know, and I know enough about other reptiles and amphibians, I can kind of cover other stuff, but there's other people that are doing that and doing that well. And so it's kind of more fun for me to focus on turtles and then periodically bring in these, these other animals and elements. So. And it's cool too when you do captive videos about kind of captive keeping, but then you go out into the actual habitat and people can kind of just see it for themselves and they get ideas. And you also, I think, kind of bring that in. So it's really yeah. unique. You know, it's not just that here's how you set up the tank and whatnot. It's it's more kind of let let's go see where they're actually at and let's let's look at that. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and what, from from going out and herping and seeing the types of places where you're likely to find them, that gives me a better insight each time I make a habitat or I want to adjust it. You know, I see like, okay, male musk turtles really like a deep pool just downstream of a ripple. Okay, how can I make that happen? You know, like when we designed the aquascape system in my yard, that was like, okay, I need a deep pool downstream of a ripple. And so they were able to build that. I need overhangs for alligator snappers because they like to go way up under banks and then we were able to build that so that's kind of the goal too is to to stay learning and to stay observing what things are and then to try and you know to try and import that on a you know a small scale but you know back into like a, a captive collection to just just to make their lives better and what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have to like maintaining this pond is it's really quite impressive how big it is. The, so the aquascape pond, I mean, the only maintenance really is what I'm going to go through in the next couple of weeks. Like right now it's, it's 20 degrees, but um, when it warms back up and it stays warm, I have to go from one end of it to the other and it's like 60 feet long and just pull all the leaves, pull all the algae. Once the turtles no longer need that thermal layer, so that's probably the only maintenance because other than that, the system takes care of itself. That's what's so amazing about their products and what they build is essentially what they've done is there's a bottom end and there's a top end and get my hand in the frame. So there's like a bottom end and a top end and each one goes four and a half feet below the ground, below like the gravel layer you see. So they go into the ground and then they reroute the water. So each one reroutes it underground and holds so much that it's like a spring. So that water maintains a warmer temperature than my other settings because so much is always in the ground. Um, so that part is really neat too. And then all of that, those, those deep um, reservoirs, it's all filtration. And then it's all biological um, filtration done with beneficial bacteria and you know microorganisms and stuff. So 
it, the, the, once they build that and it's run for like a year, it's a, the whole thing is essentially a living, breathing, you know, system. Yeah. Now my other ones, I have to do maintenance on my other ones. My other ones I've got to every now and then like clean filters. I've got to do a full clean out on them once a year. There's a, there's a lot more work to that, especially, you know, tubs are the same way. Um, but the aquascape system is really awesome because once they set that up, you know, you really don't have to do anything. I think maybe later this year I'll be due to just open up the pumps, rinse it out with a hose, put the lids back on and that's it. Wait another two years. Yeah. It's important to have the filtration that I don't think people realize how much turtles poop. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. A lot well, it also depends on what you feed them too. Yeah. Those, uh, those naturalistic ponds though, like the ones Aquascape does, there's typically this misconception. A lot of people that don't know turtles well, uh, they're, they're like, oh, that must be a ton of maintenance. But as you've said, it's actually probably easier than keeping stuff in, in a hundred, twenty, hundred and or 20 gallon tank. You, you don't really have to do much once it's set up. I mean, those initial stages, it's going to be a lot of work, but, but later on it's, it's definitely kind of self-sustaining. Yeah. I mean, you have real true UV because you're outside. So, um, yeah. the bigger the system is the waste from the turtles can become beneficial to the system because now you're feeding into, you know, the, the bacteria, the algaes and all those kind of things. And, um, one of the things that keeping turtles that can kind of give you the hardest time is if you're feeding a lot of pellets because turtles don't really digest pellets that well. If you look at real turtle waste, if you look at what comes out of the back end of a cooter, you're, it's going to look almost like a, the aquatic version of what comes out of a tortoise. You'll, you'll be able to see, you know, the digestive plant fibers and things like that. If you look at what comes out of a, an alligator snapping turtle or a musk turtle, you'll see fragments of shells, bones, uh, crayfish pieces, uh, sticks, you know, plants. So that stuff's normally is how that's supposed to come out. When you look at how waste from pellets comes out it's very pasty like toothpaste and that stuff kind of coats the inside of their digestive system so then when they eat sand and gravel that's when people have issues with impaction um and that waste doesn't really break down as cleanly either as the other kind of waste i think, the, yeah. I think the ultraviolet like the the natural uv is like super super beneficial yeah. All turtles, yeah. You get like, different colors out of turtles just from putting them outside. Yeah. I've, I've witnessed that firsthand with some, uh, I have a, I have a box turtle that was given to me like four or five years ago now. And, uh, he was the first couple of years, he was just kept inside in, uh, pretty poor conditions. And I had all these serious, this shell problems were pretty bad. And, uh, he had eye, like all kinds of fungal problems with his eyes and everything. And like, people were telling me all this stuff I needed to do. And I'm like, no, I think what I need to do is I'm just going to set him up outside and these, they was literally collected like half a mile from my house as a hatchling by the people that gave him to me. So he's native to this area, should be able to handle it. And, uh, I just, oh, I barely really had to treat anything. I just had him outside and he responded rapidly and started as all of his health problems went away. And, uh, now he's, he's grown, he's like tripled in size in the past couple of years. And, uh, he's one of the most like outgoing and healthy animals I have. So but he lives outside year round. He's brewmating right now. So. Yeah. Like that's one of the things is um, I always tell people like the best way to keep a turtle is just put it outside. I mean, it's, I hardly ever have health issues with any of my animals, especially like things I've had like long-term, I almost never have any problems with 
the times when I have problems is when somebody waits to give me an animal. You know, they wait until it starts to not do well, and then they say, oh, I need to give this to somebody that knows more. Well, then they're basically giving me a rundown sick animal, and who knows at what point in its, you know, health it's at. You know, some stuff, you just can't turn that ship around. So, um, but a lot of stuff, I mean, you you know, they worship the sun for a reason. It's, you know, it's the, the great big battery in the sky, and it kind of does everything that they need it to do. And, you know, they just do so much better. They need the elements. They... You know, people think that they're reptiles, so they need to be hot all the time. But they, you know, if they're native, they need the cold, too. Um, I think people having issues with captive stuff that just keep it indoors year round, you know, you're depriving them of seasons and cycles that they're evolved millions of years to have. Um, so I think when you take that away, you know, who knows what kind of health implications that has. I've done a lot of work at the Turtle Conservancy over the years, and that's one of the things that they do. I mean, they have got... I think at one point, 700 plus animals at this point, I think it's more like 500, but still a lot, but they're getting stuff consistently. And one of the first things they do with, with animals that come in sick with certain symptoms is just put them outside in kind of a quarantine enclosure. And I think it was about 70% of the time, typically within a few weeks, they start to, those issues just start to resolve because you are really treating them just kind of where they should be. I mean, there's obviously situations where kind of veterinary intervention is necessary and, and, and you need to do some stuff and get more invasive. But a lot of times I think, yeah, like you said, it just nature's the best medicine for it. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I, I've seen it time and time again. Somebody gives me an animal that's not that good. If it's an aquatic turtle, I have like a waterland tub that goes in. If it's a, a tortoise or a box turtle, then... I either have an area ready or I make a makeshift one and just put it outside, give it a hide so it can feel safe. And then just for weeks, just leave it alone. Just leave, you know, just leave the poor thing alone and we'll see what happens. And, you know, most times it does better. You know, it, it's funny. It just, you know, you, it's counterintuitive because it's not a dog. You know, you can't just be like, oh, my dog's sick. We'll put it outside and leave it alone. You know, like you can't do that. But, you know, um, a turtle, you know, reptiles. I mean, obviously with snakes, it would be harder, you know, but I'm pretty sure it would work with a snake too. It would just disappear. <laughs> yeah. It, it might work, but the snake might be gone. But the yeah. found a way out of the enclosure or something. Yeah, that's tougher to do. Well, we've talked about uh, some of the captive stuff and some of your YouTube stuff, but one of the things that I automatically think about, I think a lot of us here kind of can relate is uh, snapping turtles uh that's the the kind of the logo the the name of the brand and i i'm seeing a shell in the back even um and, and a photo in the back but this yeah. is uh one of your i guess specialties is uh both common and alligator snappers but i guess uh you've been doing some cool work in the field recently if you could tell us a little about that i'm i'm pretty curious about some of the updates and, and what you've been seeing yeah. out there yeah, so um, last summer, uh, I got in touch with Dirk Stevenson. Uh, basically, Grover Brown said, you know, you need to email Dirk Stevenson. He would really like to meet you guys. I think you would get along. I sent Dirk an email, and in typical Dirk fashion, took about a month or two to respond to the email. And then um, we, we went out, and we did, like, um, just basically, like, he said, hey, let's, you know, meet up, and let's talk snapping turtles. We'll put out some traps and see what we get. And... Um, 
we went, we set a trap, I think the first day and we got a juvenile, which was a recapture. Um, and the crazy thing with that was that it was a Swanee alligator snapping turtle. Last time it was captured, I believe it was like, um, in inches, it was like maybe five inches and it was 12 inches. And, and that, and that was in 2018, it was first captured five inches. And then this past summer it was at 12 inches. So that turtle had grown for an alligator snapper, a phenomenal amount. I wasn't aware that wild turtles, you know, wild, you know, Macrochiles could grow that much. So that was really cool. And then, um, so yeah, we did um, another day of trapping after that. And we brought a school, uh, Valdosta State University has a herpetology class. And so they came out and we had like 24, 25 uh, kids come out. And uh, it's funny, some of them had never even seen a wild turtle in their life. And one of the first things they saw was me and Dirk pull a trap with three adults out of a river. Um, and so I was, you know, pulling the turtles out and I was showing them all the features of the alligator snapping turtles. And then we also had a spiny soft shell um, and then some loggerhead musks. And, you know, I'm big on teaching and sharing information. And, you know, I just want to I want everybody to like turtles, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you guys are the same way. And so by the end of that day, every single student had held an alligator snapper, had held a soft shell, a loggerhead musk. Um, they had learned all about it. They'd also helped us process the turtles. So weight, measure, uh, pit tag. And then, um, you know, we filmed the whole thing. And I think, I, I guess Dirk was satisfied with that or impressed with that. And, you know, he invited me to be a part of a contract with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, it's like a two-year contract assessing the population of Sewanee alligator snapping turtles in Georgia. Uh, we started last fall, and it's been going really well. It's It's been fun because I've never, like, trapped turtles, especially never, like, I mean, I, I think I've put out, like, the little promars before for, like, musks and stuff, but I've never done, like, um, the big hoop nets, like the 48-inch. And so... Um, you know, my mind is, okay, if I was able to look through the water or if I was able to, you know, snorkel the places I would look. So combining that with Dirk's experience trapping, we were able to really kind of refine trap placement. And it's worked out really well because I think we've gotten more turtles um, just in the last fall. Just last fall, I think we got more than he's gotten previously. Um, just by us kind of combining our knowledge, which has been really fun. I bet the turtle trapping is uh, really fun to be a part of and probably learn a lot more about how it works. And it's not just uh, like the more I really read into it, it's like it's, they don't you can't just like randomly throw the trap in the water. There's like you kind of have to plan yeah. specifically where you're putting it and think about it from like the perspectives you say, like, where's the turtle coming from? Where are they actually going to be? And uh, there's always like limitations. Like you can't just set it and you can't set it on the bottom in like 20 feet of water. It's gotta be in like somewhat shallow so they can still breathe. Yeah. There there's been like a learning curve and it. it's funny because it's the people that are good at it. There's almost like an art to it, like a sportsman's art. And like one of the things you have to do is you walk down to the water and you say, okay, you're scanning. Okay. There's some down trees that are obvious but is there a tree that's on the bottom that maybe we don't see? Is there an overhang? Is there a limestone structure underwater? And so then, okay, this looks good, but then you need to look at the surface of the water. Is the current gonna pass through the trap? And then, you know, you're not looking to put the trap at the good spot. You wanna put it upstream of the good spot, right? So you want that, you want that yeah. scent to travel directly to the spot you think that they're hiding in 
or a path that they're going to use when they walk upstream because they don't necessarily walk up the deep channel of the river. I mean, they probably do, especially the biggest ones, but they still need to come up and get air. So they're, they're going to kind of work their way more along the edges. So you're, it's, you can have a spot you think is good, but you may not really get a lot of a trap if you put it there because the scent may, you know, there could be an eddy and it just swirls around the trap and then doesn't go anywhere. So there's a lot to, to take in as far as factors. And then you have to pay attention to weather. Is the water going to rise? Is it going to change how our trap sits? Is it, you know, obviously you either want to tie your trap up nice and high, or you want to have a float because you definitely don't want to drown a turtle. Um, you got to take into account, is there, you know, 50 yellow bellied sliders basking on the other side of the river that are just going to eat your bait before the, you know, the snappers even have a chance to, is there going to be alligators? Are they going to get in there and eat your bait and destroy the trap? Um, and then are there rednecks that are going to steal your trap? You know, <laughs> there, there's just so many things, you know, and, and it's really cool. It's fun because it's fun to set it. And then, then for me personally, like I don't sleep the whole night. Cause I'm just like, I'm thinking about, we could place 14 traps. I'm thinking about all 14 of them and like, okay, what's it's gotta be, so, it's gotta be awesome when you're pulling them out of the water and you're just like that anticipation. Like, yeah. How, how many do you get? How many have you gotten? What's the mo the most that you've gotten in one trap? Um, I think it's been, I think we've had two that had three in them. So three turtles is about as much as I, I think that they're, they tolerate each other, but I think when they get into a trap, they kind of get a little panicky. So I think three is really crowding a trap, especially three adults. Um, and the times we've gotten three, they're usually, you know, 30 pound, 40 pound turtles. Um, I think maybe the biggest was shy of 50, but you know, you're not going to get 300 pounders or three 90 pounders in there. Um, I just think that that's just kind of crowding it up too much. And I also think once you get two that weigh that much in there, they're going to start bending the trap. And I don't even know if the funnel will work correctly for a third, you know, it, it, in the scenario of three giant ones. Um, Luke Pearson would probably be a better person to ask for that because he catches giant ones all the time. What type of bait do you guys use? Um, it's, it's just whatever fish heads that, that dirt gets. And then, um, you know, you, you can use sardines or not use sardines, but um, for the most part with alligator snapping turtles, bait doesn't really matter as much as freshness. They're not like a common snapper. They're not gonna eat on something that's old or rotten as, as much as like a common snapper. What a, a common snapper, you could kind of just throw anything in there that's gross and they'll go for it. But alligator snappers really prefer fresh. Um, and then the other thing you want is something that's oily. So it's going to consistently put out, you know, scent. So usually a fish head is the best. Like if you've ever cooked with a fish head, like, you know, people will use it in soups and stuff because it just, that's where all the flavor is. You know, the best piece of meat on a fish is the cheeks. So, um, a fish head will just sit there in a mint oil, you know, like when I've gone with the FWC guys, they use, you know, big fish heads. Um, and you know, they'll do just a single fish head in a trap, which is really funny. Cause I'm just like, is that enough? Is there usually any bycatch um, in the traps or do you like tend yeah. to just get so the alligator snappers? With Dirk, I think the most common bycatch is uh, big Florida soft shells and yellow bellied sliders. But we have gotten a Sewanee Cooter, um, loggerhead musk turtles, 
one time we had a trap that just had loggerhead musk turtles on, crawling around on the outside of it. Uh, spiny soft shells. We have a, one of the rivers actually has spinies and Florida soft shells together, which is really cool. Right on. That's interesting. The uh, going back to the bait question, real quick. Buffalo one of the chicken. ones I don't know if you guys have tried buffalo chicken yet, but that was there was actually a publication by Eric Muncher and and the group out I think in Texas, and really? they actually they. I, they demonstrated that it was compared to other types of baits significantly more effective at catching uh, large alligator snappers. I don't know if that would cross over. I, I'd imagine just because it's pretty aromatic and the, the, the seasoning yeah. or whatnot, but well, that you, might be a fun one. You have to imagine that is, let's say you're this big, you know, this big turtle and you live in a riverine environment. So at the time period when you get active and you come out from under the bank, you're going to be sitting there and you're just, you know, waiting for what kind of scent is going to come down, what's going to be interesting, you know, so a buffalo chicken, you know, chicken already checks one box. Okay, that smells kind of good, kind of interesting. And then you add, you know, buffalo sauce, which is what, like vinegar and probably a bunch of other goofy stuff. And um, so you, you, you've created something interesting that they're going to want to, they're going to be like, well, what is this, you know, so they're going to go check it out. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that have used things that are really surprising, like um, honey smoked bacon. I know people have used that and that works. Um, I know people have used, uh, you mentioned the, the buffalo chicken. I've also heard um, like barbecue chicken, you know, um, a, a few other things. And uh, it's, I think it's more about, can you first get them interested to draw them, to draw them out or to draw them in close to the trap? And then, you know, do they get, cause you know, you're, you're talking about, they can feel the, 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 the throat of the trap when they go in. So they know that they're going to have to like squeeze themselves in. So is basically is the juice worth the squeeze, right? So they got it. Is it going to be worth it for them to go through this hassle of, you know, first, what is this thing that this food is in? Is it worth me trying to press myself in here to get it? So if it smells really good and is irresistible, you know, like, hey, you know, if, it, if it's buffalo wings that does it in Texas, it sounds good to me, too. One thing uh, I wonder about the turtle trapping, and I think I discussed this with Michael last time I was with him, and uh, we talked about, like, just trapping alligators, snapping turtles in general is, what if, like, the bigger turtles might not have as much of an, might not always have as much as an incentive to go to the traps as some of the smaller ones? Because a lot of the big turtles are probably dominating like certain parts of the river that are really beneficial. Like maybe there's like when we looked at the, the recent publication from the Suwannee River, like all of like the middle channel of the river, like they did a sonar scan and like the middle part's like 30 feet deep. But it's got all these limestone overhangs on the bottom and uh, has this bed that is probably just full of mollusks. And uh, that runs along the river. And I'm like, that's probably where a lot of the bigger males are going to sit there. And uh, they might have less of an incentive to leave if they're sitting on a, a mountain of mollusks they can just graze on all day. But while the small yeah, ones I've, take what they I've can been get. There. And I've, I've seen the place where, you know, we went there to set traps and it ended up raining on us. So I ended up not getting to be a part of the trap day for that because we had to cancel. But I got to see that part of the river where those big, the biggest males that FWC gets. And yeah. to me, it's a miracle that they get any in the traps because the river is so wide. It's so deep. Like the fact that they're able to get them in there, first off, tells you that there's a lot of them, you know, 
You know, if yeah. you're able to get first off the numbers that they get and they are consistently getting, you know, new animals, you know, each year. So there's a huge population there. And then they also have the ability to draw them in from, like you said, like 30 feet of water, you know, possibly even more when the water's up. Um, and then, yes, like you said, uh, getting them interested and pulling them away from a natural diet, um, something that's easier for them to access. Uh, you, you know, you're really, you know, again, it comes back to, you know, bait and position of a trap. You know, are you in, a, are you in just a right spot? You know, those guys have been doing their trapping for, I think, over 10 years now. So they've got their... Um, They've got their spots they know works. You know, when I ride with Travis and Kevin, Travis remembers each little tree they tie off to, and they're like, oh, yeah, we got that 80-pounder right here off this tree. And then, uh, you know, the next one we go to, they're like, oh, yeah, we got two in this trap, you know. So um, it, it's really cool to see, you know, the places that they go because those guys, they, I mean, they have it down to a literal science. You've gone out with them as well, too, right? I guess we can give people yeah. a little context. Um, th recently, the, the alligator snapping turtle were split into two or three different species. That third one is arguable, I guess. But uh, regardless, the Suwannee variety, uh, the one that we're talking about, is sort of the most distinct. And, and there's not a lot of argument if, whether that's a full, ta a full species. But so you've done work both with the kind of looking at the upper Suwannee and seeing if the species is in Georgia to what extent, but also on the, the middle and lower sections all in Florida. Right. And that's, yeah. that's gonna. Yeah. I've been to pretty much every part of the Suwannee alligator snappers range. So, and been able to pretty much see, I've been able to find and see turtles from I'm like trying to remember, but yeah, pretty much every part. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah. Like the, just the variation even within that single species, depending on what where they come from in the range. Like the ones in the Santa Fe look different than the ones in the main channel, the Suwannee, like depending on their diet or environmental conditions and things like that. And it influences their size too. Like the lower Suwannee in Santa Fe has some giant males that are pretty common, but they don't seem to be as much in some of the other areas. But Yeah. Well and it's it's you know, it's it's like that in, you know, whether you want to call the it the other two species or the, you know, um, you know, the upper Flint river turtles look, you know, different than the lower Flint. And then they're, you know, the Chattahoochee river, which is the next river over is still considered part of the Apalachicola drainage, but you know, those turtles have kind of their own look. Um, so it, what it comes down to is these turtles don't cross land. They don't, you know, they're not like the common snappers. So they get into these focused genetic lineages in the areas that they're at. And, you know, they're just breeding over and over and over. And so you're going to get, you know, just, you know, certain characteristics are just going to, you know, evolve and get more focused on each, you know, isolated group within whatever part of the river system they're in. Uh, the ones above the fall line here in Georgia, you know, they, the rivers are shallower and swifter. So they have a bit narrower of a shell. They're a bit smaller. I, it's rare to see one, you know, over 90 pounds would be a huge one. Um, and then they, you know, are, almost exclusive mollusk eaters from the time they're like 12 inches up. So they get these just, you know, big mallet heads and, um, they, they go around the bottom, just absolutely tearing up the bottom of the stream, you know, digging around for, for whether it's introduced corbicula or native mussels. Um, they're going to give loggerhead musk turtles a hard time. Um, so, 
you know, and then you go over to, I did notice in um, the alligator snapper I caught in Birmingham, Alabama would be the Western, the Taminki eye, because that's part of the mobile drainage. Um, you know, they have their own look and then you get over into Mississippi and they look a little bit different. You know, as you go West, they start, they all start to kind of, each river drainage kind of has their own appearance and, you know, kind of, it's all subtle. I mean, you, you have to be an alligator snapping turtle dork like me to notice it because most people that study them, you know, they, you know, even Dirk, like to him, they, they kind of all look the same. I have to like point out to him like, Oh, this is, this is this, this is this. And, um, the more you look at them, the more you see it. It's, yeah, like the, what, it's interesting how that happens. You start to, if you just to, over and over again, like with pond turtles out here, I've seen probably thousands at this point. I can just kind of, I mean, it, I'm only looking at one population. I'm talking about more like sexual dimorphism. If I see a male, female, it's just easy to tell that variability. But like you've done so much work with them over the years that you just have, it's an incredible eye that you have for kind of that variation. I imagine as a photographer too, you've kind of got this built in, I, I don't know. I compare it to like Ken uses the software image J it's like you can map those little points on the animal without a, a computer program. And you just kind of see uh, the intricate details and, and it's really, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool thing. I think it's yeah, great. You know, I'm just I, like you said, maybe it, maybe it is because I'm a photographer and you know, I have an eye for detail. I just, I have, I'm have like a psycho, just obsessive personality. And, um, so like I just when I get focused on something, I want to know it inside and out. And then when it's something that I'm passionate about, I just, you know, I just take in every last bit of it. You know, it's you know, I notice with the alligator snapping turtles from the Birmingham area and the mobile drainage, there's a last vertebral scute that has a tendency to kind of stick out more like a little shark fin, whereas the other ones don't really have that. Um, the Flint River turtles, you know, have one sometimes two super marginals and then you get lower flint and they start to develop more into three. I've got a carapace at my house that has no super marginals from the upper flint. Um, so, you know, just noticing little things like that, you know, is that's, you know, there's just subtle characteristics and, you know, there, it, it applies to all species. Like we were talking about with that river cooter picture, um, you know, river cooters further North, it's rockier and they've got to fit their heads in between tinier, rockier crevices to feed on, you know, plants and stuff. And then you get to the coastal plain. Like if you look at a coastal plain cooter, they have like a blocky head, uh, red bellies have blocky heads. And then the Sewanee cooters have a much more, you know, kind of chunky head because they're feeding in more of an open area on like eel grasses and, and stuff like that. So it's just, you know, you, it, it's also just getting old and just seeing stuff over a, a, an expanse of time. So I think the fact that you paired it with like, you have this uh, really like honed like interest and uh, you're a really good photographer too. So it actually brings it out. Like people can really see it through the pictures and everything. Like that's like the first, I think I've been seeing those for like five or six years now. Some of the pictures you've been uh, like sharing and, and taking and uh, like, nope, I've never really seen, barely anybody else does that like with really takes good photos of these obscure or more unknown turtles that and brings it into the light like i think that's really good yeah and it's just one of those things like um again it just comes down to kind of just being obsessive and just being like okay 
I, I had that feeling and I don't know if you've ever had this where like, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it right. So like, I'm like, I better do this and I better like, I better shoot a photo of this or, you know, put it out there. And, you know, and again, it also comes back to, I didn't go the academic route. So, you know, I'm not publishing a paper, but I can put out some photos and, you know, find ways to share information and, um, you know, do my part to help make people aware. With the photography, um, when you go out and you're taking pictures, um, is there like a project you're uh, working on, like specific, uh, like morphologic, like uh, turtles that you want to like photograph, or is it just kind of like whatever you find, or how do you like approach uh, like that sort of side of things? Sometimes, sometimes it's random, and it's just as simple as I'm going out looking for stuff, and I have a camera with me, um, and it's just like, man, this is. You know, even if it's something that's relatively common, like a loggerhead musk turtle, every now and then I see one that I just, um, I just really like the way it looks or something like that. Or if it's an alligator snapping turtle, like I either like the habitat, like I want to be able to, I have like a mental checklist, I guess. So it's like, I want to show habitat sometimes. Sometimes I want to show like a particular feature of the animal or sometimes it's, sometimes it's sentimental. Like I just want to capture a moment that I really liked. And, you know, I always tell people this too, especially these days is like, you don't, nobody needs to take a wild turtle home, but you can take a photo home, you know, like there's turtles that I've caught that I'll never see again, but I'm, I love it because I have these amazing, you know, images of them that I captured and, you know, I get to reflect back and be sentimental on that moment. I get to look at the animal and, and study the photos I took of that animal. I look at the, the habitat photos I took. So it's there's like kind of a lot of dimensions to it and then you know but like i said sometimes it's just as simple as like man that looks cool and i'm just taking a picture of it but, yeah sometimes uh, you don't even notice that something's uh something significant until you come come home and actually look at the photograph greg i think the our first interaction together was that um i found this uh odoratus it had you know the i think it had the humoral scute that's fused with the pectorals and it's plastron i just thought that was really weird and you know you, you came up and you know, kind of talked to me about that that's that's kind of cool yeah yeah and like that's the thing is like um i i also think that you should document any observation you think is even if you think it's you're possibly wrong or you know like just document all of it you know, like keep, keep a file. I mean, I have multiple folders in my phone of just like random stuff. I see that, you know, maybe doesn't pan out now, but maybe down the road, you know, might turn into something. I have a whole folder on my phone of some traits that I've noticed in the Suwannee alligator snappers that nobody's published on. And they're basically secondary identifying characteristics. So um, I'll probably through Kevin and uh, Travis, you know, see if I can partner with them on publishing that because as it is right now, it's all based on photos I've taken of, of turtles I trapped. But I've, I've noticed some things that every single one of them so far has it. And then the other alligator snapping turtles don't have it. Um, so, you know, little things like that. It's like, I, it's just something I happened to notice in, in some pictures. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna start focusing on that and see if I notice that. Um, and you, you, like I said, you can do that with anything. You know, like, you know, you, you had that odoratus and, you know, a lot of people will catch odoratus around Georgia and Atlanta and they think that they're hybridized with loggerhead musk turtles. But our odoratus, when they get old, they go from having stripes to having spots in a mottled pattern and having like lighter colored skin. Whereas you go down to South Florida and they're jet black or you go up north and they're jet black. So, um, 
you know, there's just little things that, you know, you know, we're, we're all constantly learning. We're not done learning about anything in this world. You know, we, we've only been here just a blink in time. That's a, that documentation is actually very similar to, I have that kind of mindset with a lot of different things, especially with like the musk turtles. And uh, like, anytime I find one that like, I, I'd almost always take pictures of every single one. And just, I have hundreds and hundreds of them on my phone. And uh, like, especially when it comes to like their megacephaly and trying to like to the extent that it's exhibited and then like, all right, what habitat are they in? What specifically are they feeding on? And uh, the better pictures of that, like, that's why when I first got down to some of the springs, I was like, everybody was, everybody I was with, they're like, why are you so obsessed with these loggerhead muscles? Like you're getting like dozens of videos and pictures. And I'm like, I can't stop. I, I'd like, every time I would get one, I have to examine it and like, look at the huge heads and just like, that's the thing. And, and that's, that's what you do is, is be that guy, be the guy where people are saying like, why are, why are you so interested in, you know, something that they think might not be as significant, you know, maybe people think it's not as significant because they're small or because they're seemingly abundant, you know, like for years I was obsessed with pseudemies and river cooters and I, I still am, I still love them um, because, you know, there's so many subtle differences. You can almost, figure out which river drainage they came from based on appearance. Um, and, you know, and people were always like, you know, they, they, they were like, oh, why are you into sliders? And I'm like, well, they're cooters, you know, and, and but it's, yeah. it's being that guy and being interested in something that everybody's overlooking, like Viv and Carl call it the low hanging fruit for a reason, because it's the stuff that everybody's walking past or not really looking into. And sometimes there's like, sometimes there's some really good stuff going on there. And I, I think, you paying attention to loggerheads and springs and what's going on with the skulls and the, the development that they have. And I, I think that from what I've seen with loggerhead musk turtles, those turtles in those springs and the ones here in the upper Flint, even though they're considered the same species, like, man, they're, they're vastly different. There's a lot of different physical characteristics that, that okay. are between that, between those two areas, like they're very, very different. So be the guy that notices stuff and document it. You know, That's, I, uh... I think, if you had a big red sore on your taint, you would take a picture and send it to a doctor, right? You know, you'd, yeah. like, you'd want to oh. know what that is. So, you know, be like that. Yeah, That's what it is to be a naturalist, too. I think a lot of times in, in this day and age, there's a lot of, you know, oh, fancy, I'm a molecular biologist, I'm this, I'm that, whatever. And and it's it, there's something to be said for that kind of thing. But when it really comes down to it, it, it really the best naturalists in history, and I think it's going to be the case for many years and centuries to come are the people that really kind of, like you said, dive into those minute details and really exploit that. And uh, just to kind of bring it back, I guess, to the, the snapping turtles and the documentation there, there's a lot of value in just the kind of document, the morphology and the morphological differences when it comes to the paper that was written on, on the subject where they split them into three species there were some things I think there that we just need more data in order to answer kind of the, the, the Apalachicola snapping turtles versus the, the Western lineage. Uh, I don't know if there's, I think a lot of the issue right now is there isn't necessarily enough information out there. That paper used two different morphological characters essentially in their statistical analysis and then a limited amount of genetic data I think that realistically in order to get an answer, we need just more kind of things. So the stuff that you're documenting in terms of the morphological variation is something that 
in terms of analysis of, of speciation, if, if there's another review, that that's very beneficial data. Um, and just to kind of have more of it, it gets it, it's it's probably more useful than than molecular work. And it's uh, something that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and going to that paper where they split them into the three species, they they base a lot of it on uh, cranial morphology, which that's a good place to go. Um, and then, like you said, it was limited genetic work. Um, I think we're at a point now where we're able to go way more in depth with that. Um, and then one of the things that they used was the scutes over the tail, um, the pygal bones. And, you know, that it, that was a bit of an imperfect science because, yes, in the Suwannee alligator snapping turtle, most individuals, it's got like a really wide kind of lunate shape. And that's the dominant trait for that species. But you know, just because a trait's dominant doesn't mean that they're not individuals where it's not dominant. And I've caught Sewanee, I've caught two or three individuals. I have a whole folder of uh, caudal notch variation. Um, and I've caught two or three where they look just like one from the upper flint, little narrow triangular ones. And then I've seen ones from the Apalachicola drainage that have a really wide caudal notch. I've seen Westerns that have that. So um, in those, it's not a dominant trait. It just pops up randomly. But um, so that was like a little bit of an imperfect way to do it. Um, Apalachicole has a huge caudal notch variation depending on where you find them. Um, and then there was a rebuttal paper by Folt and he leaned heavily on a paper talking about cranial morphology. And one of the things that that paper that he leaned on was saying that there was an overlap and they were basically saying, Turtles from this area were considered Apalachicole, but they're Tamigia. And actually, that paper was incorrect. They used a creek that drained into the Choctawatchee River, and they were saying that was Tamigia. And that's actually the creek that drains into the Choctawatchee. The Choctawatchee is an Apalachicola River. So that paper was actually factually incorrect. And then Fult leaned on that mainly for his paper. And then, but Fult was correct in, in assessing that the caudal notch variation wasn't enough to to separate the species. So Florida still treats Apalachicola turtles as a separate species on a conservation basis. Um, I recommend Georgia does that. Georgia, you know, we'll see what they do. Um, I also think there's a population of mobile drainage turtles because we do have a river on the far west side of Georgia that goes into Alabama. You know, there's no, there's no like checkpoint in the river where somebody's not letting alligator snappers through there. It's just nobody's caught them there yet. Like that's a really good point to you very recently, like you and several other people started finding a lot of people don't seem to have a great understanding of the alligator snapping turtles, uh, just their basic ecology and, and uh, how they actually move and, and ex like exist in the river systems. They, they're not really planted in one spot. And they're not always just going to sit motionless on the bottom. They'll move upstream and they don't require slow moving, uh, seemingly swamp like habitat. That's not really like they can thrive in that, but that's not their MO specifically. Like it's really like riverine habitat that they'll go way up into the tributaries, even like larger males. Like uh, that one group in Texas, it was not not Carl and Viviana, but whoever the other guy, uh, uh, John, I talked to him a bit. They're the one that's the ones that caught that 200 pound to uh, They were trapping everything like they had. They had it pretty right. Like they were trapping lakes, tiny little streams. And that's why they were so successful. And they were going to places where, like, well, these rivers connect to 
places we know they're at and nobody's looked for them here. So why wouldn't they be here? We need to see if they are. And a lot of other groups didn't seem to have that mindset. They seem to be like way too conservative about it. They're like, Oh, they're probably not going to be in here. Or, oh, the river is too rocky or it's too shallow. Yeah. Like, I, I think that comes to just experience. I think the groups, I, I think you have two ends of experience. You either have, we've always done it this way and we're going to keep doing it this way, you know? And then you have inexperienced and they learn from the people that have always done it a certain way. Um, so, you know, for, I can only speak for me personally and people that, that I know, but I, my preferred way to find them is walking around and, and looking at the bottom and reading the bottom and being able to see where they, they hide during the day. They leave, you know, if you can see the bottom where they dig into a bank or go under a log, it's almost like a gopher tortoise burrow. There's an apron of sand and um, places where they frequent, you know, they, they leave evidence. Um, so if you have that ability to look for that, that's going to help you. Um, and then, it, you know, it, the guy was right. I mean, if he's going to trap everything, like all kinds of habitat, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like betting, you know, like you just, the more you try, the more you're going to get, you're not going to, no risk taken, no gain, you know? So, um, I just think, you know, they're super cryptic turtles and then depending on where they're at, they have different ecologies, you know, here in the upper Flint, they really congregate towards shallow, fast moving water. That's where you find most of them. When you get to like slow open water or soft bottom, which most people traditionally would think is good, you get like, you know, maybe a single individual or something like that here. They really congregate into the fast rocky stuff. Now, other parts of their range, they're going to be focused, you know, look at like the, uh, you know, kind of the heart of the alligator snapping turtle range. Traditionally, most people would mind like a bayou, big swampy, you know, slow moving, you know, it's, it's almost the exact opposite of where I find them. And, but that over there, that's their preferred habitat. And then you get into Texas and I think the Trinity is fairly deep and muddy. It's not clear. It's not particularly clean from what I've heard. Um, and there's not, I don't even think there's like a lot of mollusk life in there. So, um, they're adaptable, you know, and they're going to become specialists to where they live. I think that's, a one thing I'm going to say about that is a lot of the, they're most well known in those, in like the heart of their range out there too. Like when anybody thinks of alligator snapping triples, they think of them from like bayous or something. They don't really think of them. Uh, they don't generally think of them from other places as, as fast. And I think that leads to a false belief that they're ecologically ju like just very almost the same as an a common snapper, just larger. But yeah. if anything, they're a lot more like a musk turtle in their ecology and the way that they'll specialize on things. Well, common snappers never really seem to specialize on anything. They always seem to just tear up whatever they whatever comes first. They just go for it. Like they don't seem yeah, to have any preference. And yeah. the common snapper is like a is like the monitor lizard of the turtle world you know they're prowling they're investigating you know when they're active and they're hunting i mean they're just moving all over the place poking their nose into everything anything that moves is potentially a meal for a common snapping turtle anything that's been dead is a meal for common snapping. i mean they, they really are like a monitor lizard um and they're they're really intelligent um i don't i don't think common snapping turtles get enough credit for how intelligent they are um, a lot of people just think they're, you know, just a dumb snapping turtle and, you know, they, they, they process and they think, you know, very quickly. Um, and they're, you know, but they couldn't be different, more different from an alligator snapping turtle. Um, 
morphologically, behaviorally, um, just their entire, their entire being, they're, they're, they're very separate, but I think because they look so similar to the, the average Joe, they get kind of lumped together. And sometimes they mix too. I'm curious uh, yeah. about your experience with hybrid snappers. If you've ever seen them in, in, in C2 before or what you kind of know about those. You know, to my knowledge, that doesn't happen. Um, I've been to a few streams where there's, there's one and, um, I I've gone to it a lot and there's a, it's a Flint drainage stream. So it's full of alligator snapping turtles, but there's a big man-made lake next to it. And so the common snapping turtles will go back and forth. They'll utilize both habitats. And I, I remember one day I, I caught a, a common snapper and I shot some photos of her, you know, nice looking, you know, female. I just, she was very photogenic. And then the next time I came down there, she had been eaten by an alligator snapper. Just, you know, you could tell by the, um, the imprints left on the carapace where he had bitten down and then let go to readjust and get another bite while he was eating her. You know, you could see the V shape, you know, and then the notch where the hook of the beak was and the carapace and, but basically flipped her over and then just stripped her apart from the plastron and, and then, you know, parts that could break off. But I just don't think they get along in the wild. I've seen, um, at another site, I, one I, I went to with you guys, um, there was a common snapping turtle trying to get underneath a bank and then it all of a sudden came out and then it actually went up onto land and kind of like shut down, just stopped moving and everything. And then there was an alligator snapping turtle under that bank and it kind of went back under when it saw me. And because they utilize undercut banks, both species, I think that that's maybe a point of friction between the two and that they won't share space. Alligator snapper turtles will share space with each other, but they won't share space with a common. So for them to hybridize in the wild, I, I mean, I, in the millions of years they both existed and because we now know that they can, I'm sure it has happened. Um, but I, I think they're, I think it's like ultra, ultra rare. You know, the situation where it's happened, for example, uh, my friend that passed away, Fred, he has like a 90 pound male Apalachicola and a bunch of Florida snapping turtles in a saltwater crocodile pond. And there's no other thing for that turtle to mate with, you know, like there's Florida snappers in there and, you know, he would mate with a 1980s printer if you put it in there, but you know, there were Florida snapping turtles in there and that was the option. And it produced viable offspring for actually a period of years to the point now where, you know, it's, now pretty much everybody has seen those, you know, at this point, if you, if you're in the turtle world, you've seen that there are, uh, alligator snapper hybrids and they're, they're weird. They're different. You know, they're, it, it's kind of like, I have a hybrid between a map turtle and a river cooter and you get like a split personality. And it's the same thing with those guys. It's like, they, the defensive behavior is a split between the two. You get the gaping jaw, but you also get the, the kind of rocket powered neck. It's just, it's a shorter neck. Um, some of them will actually lure mine. Mine doesn't lure. I, I, Fred gave me one that I found in a Cayman pond. Um, so it's, it seems also that no two are exactly alike. Some lean more, you know, Achilles, some lean more Collydra. Some are like a perfect 50, 50 split. Um, it's, it's bizarre. And, you know, it feels like Jurassic park a little bit. Um, and you know, people that are into the captive stuff there, there's a lot of people that are into what's really different. You know, if they're into morphs, you know, a lot of times they're into hybrids. So, um, 
personally, you know, to me, they're one-offs that are very interesting. They have sentimental value to me because, you know, they came from my buddy Fred, but uh, I don't necessarily think we need to be like making those. Yeah. I think uh, alligator snapping, I think in the wild, like if it was, if it would happen consistently in the wild, you'd think you would see someone find one at some point. I've never heard of anyone finding one in the wild. It's only under those artificial conditions where like there's a male with a bunch of female common snappers and well, he has to make do with what he's got. So he just yeah, starts like going to town with yeah. the female commons. And, but even then, even then it's more likely he'll eat them than mate them with them. Like after a while, like, yeah, because Pritchard had uh, at one point he had, he had a giant male, like Western, this one that was gifted to him by Redmond. Like there's a bunch of pictures of it. It was like that one that was like 160 pounds or something, like just a giant male. And uh, he had it in this like tub. And then he he found a, a small like 10 inch Florida snapper crossing the just crossing his yard. And he threw it in that tub overnight. I don't know if he realized what tub he threw it in, but uh, it was there was all that was left was shell fragments the, last, the next morning. I'm sure I'm sure as soon as you put those two together, the alligator snapper went to town and just ate it. Yeah. They're monsters that the fact that they can do that, like common snappers don't seem to have that much of an incentive or even the jaw power to really do much to a lot of other turtles. Well, there doesn't seem to be much that an Alex snapper turtle can't get to. One of the things that we talked about when we were in like this July or past July was uh, Florida snapping turtles. It was That was pretty interesting. You've noticed a lot of, there's some documentation of like the uh, the tubercles on the neck are longer than the Florida snappers and and things, but you've noted some other kind of morphological variations and even sort of you mentioned kind of a clinal variation from the I guess Gulf Coast of Florida and and upward. If, yeah. if you could talk about that a little. Yes, the the Florida snapping turtles are interesting because um, again it's a low hanging fruit thing and it's a noticing minutia and the details kind of thing. Um, as you mentioned, they, they have longer, more pointed tubercles on the head and neck. Um, common snapping turtles, the, the little more rounded tubercles don't actually come up as far onto the head. Uh, with Florida snapping turtles, those long pointed tubercles, they come all the way up um, to the, um, you know, the, the musculature attached to the supraoccipital. Um, so from the head down, you know, they've got all these long tubercles. And then if you were to look at their carapace, the second and third vertebral scutes are really wide. And that's because typically Florida snapping turtles have a bit wider and more compressed head. So like if you were to look at it from a profile, it's a little bit thinner. And if you look at it from the top, it's a little bit wider. They also have like a bit more developed neck muscles, like their necks shoot out faster than a common. So it seems to, for them to withdraw all that, the ribs had to widen. Um, so those vertebral skews, the second and third vertebrals are wider than they are in a common snapping turtle. And they're about the same size as the coastal skews. Um, and then when you look at the tail, the Florida snapping turtles have three rows of those really developed osteoderms, whereas the common snapping turtle kind of has just like one main row of well-developed osteoderms. So looking at those things, you can really kind of see like, oh, okay, they are morphologically, you know, unique. Um, and then, on the west coast of Florida, especially you get around like Tampa area, they get really dark. Uh, the tubercles can be like really, really long um, and kind of a unique shape, uh, but you know, darker skin. And then you go east coast and the lower you go down the east coast, they get kind of a lighter color. You start to see more of like an orange tone to the carapace. 
And then uh, a buddy of mine herps around the Everglades a lot. And we've been noticing, I'm trying to compile photos from people that have been there that I don't think I've seen an Everglades Florida snapping turtle over 12 inches. They all seem to be really small down there. And I don't know if that's because most of the time that water's pretty shallow that they're in um, and they don't need to be big. Maybe it's a food thing. They don't need to be big. I know the, the Everglades striped mud turtles are also smaller. I think the odoratus from down there are smaller. Um, so I'm not really sure what that's about, but that's another thing that, you know, is one of those where I'm kind of seeing what's going on there every time somebody sends a photo, but I've never seen a big one from down there. So uh, Florida snapping turtles, if you exclude the ones from the springs, average smaller than the common snapper. Um, yeah. But you get into the springs and they get massive. But I think the ones in the springs have a lot more um, more northern snapping turtle uh, genetics. Yeah, actually, uh, talking to Dr. Johnson, everybody who runs who runs the like the surveys in some of those areas, uh, a lot of them think, or at least this is what he said, that they grow so fast down there they're barely in a juvenile stage, like because they're only finding ones that are like not far after hatching or like. 16 plus inches like they're finding huge adults yeah. and like smaller ones so he thinks once they hatch that spring is such a constant perfect habitat year round that uh they can just ramp up their growth and they do kind of resemble a lot of the time they do seem to resemble the northern ones a bit more but uh about like the what you said about the width of the carapace was actually really interesting because uh, at CRI, Pritchard had like, he, had, he probably had like hundreds of Florida snapper carapaces and they were all a lot wider. One of them was ridiculously wide. We called it the Frisbee because it was, remember this one, Michael? It was, it was the just about yeah. inches wide and it was less than 15 inches long. So it was, it was like significantly wider than it was long and it was really flat. Like, yeah, I, I've seen that, especially in the really, really old male uh, Florida snappers, they'll get like, they'll just keep getting like wider. And then the back kind of like they, it's like they reach a maximum length, but their shell keeps getting wider. And you know, like how turtle shells grow, like the, the bone keeps ossifying down the fontanelle bones. And it's almost like, as that's happening, the shell is just like, we're going to go this way now. And you know, like I've caught a few and I, I had a video I put out last year herping in, um, in Florida. And I caught like a bunch of Florida snappers in one day and I kept, I caught this really old male I've caught on a couple trips down there. And he's like, he's the same way. He's almost the same width as he is length. And, and in the shell also kind of, they get older and it kind of, as it grows and gets wider, gets a little flatter and a little flatter. And so, yeah, they do kind of like look like a Frisbee or like a UFO or something. We're, we're coming up on, on time here, but uh, I've, we've got like one more question, but I just want to, Ken, you wrote about something a while back um, about how there's only, the, there was a study that was done that showed that there was essentially just one haplotype of common snappers that was shared across a large kind of swath of the distribution. I think it's kind of interesting considering there's a lot of like clinal variation. I wonder how that it seems like that that would hint at the fact that maybe there's a lot more to look at. I, I don't remember the specifics of that paper. Maybe Ken, you could talk about that a little more if you remember. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, that, that was quite a while ago. I I can't say I remember the specifics of that paper. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's another testament to just how um, adaptable the snapping turtles are. They, they can do with pretty much everything, you know, whether it's heavy pollution or, you know, streams or swamps, they, 
yeah, they're just genetically predisposed to just take care of everything. That's awesome. Are you in a bunk bed? Uh, it's not a bunk bed. This it's actually there's a table like underneath here. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> yeah. you're in like a treehouse. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah common snappers, man. I, I've seen them. I've literally caught them in large puddles before. I've caught juveniles in large puddles. I've caught adults in, I mean, negligible habitat. I mean, it's like it's somehow they're eking out an existence and some stuff that, you know, I'm almost wondering if they're feeding on stuff on land and just dragging it to water to be able to swallow it. That's, I wonder if they do actually, what if they, if they're consuming vegetation or maybe even small animals on the land and then dragging it back into the water. Back in the day on turtle forum, um, there was somebody that had shared some photos of one eating, I think it was, I forget the name of the plant, but they had photos of one leaving water and eating shoots coming out in the spring and dragging it back to water to eat it. So, uh, they have been observed doing that. Interesting. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. we've got, Oh yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say like a lot of it could also just be due to like um, how much they migrate, you know, they, they can migrate through brackish water. They can migrate through fresh water. And that really allows them to like mate with a lot of individuals over a large swath of area that could also um, hamper like the genetic diversity of these animals. That's yeah. That's like how, uh, that's a good point with the salt water because when I'm out looking for uh, diamondback terrapins and, uh, I, I find them in great abundance in certain areas, but occasionally I do find common snappers in there and I find them dead on the road. And uh, I'm always surprised. I'm like, what in the, like they can apparently tolerate like something. It's almost like 50% seawater. Like they can serve, they can breed and feed and, and like grow successfully in that. So it, it's just weird to see one there. Cause I'm used to seeing, I mean, I mean, I see like 50 pound cow nose seat, like stingrays swimming through the water and uh, I've encountered sharks. I've seen all kinds of cool things in the water that you'd associate with marine life. And uh, then there's just common snappers in the mix. They're closely related to sea turtles as well. So it's kind of interesting to see where that's going to go over the long term. If they're going to, I mean, I imagine the sea turtles have entered the ocean in multiple radiations. And so we might be seeing kind of the real time evolution of that. Well, I guess one of the things that was interesting with alligator snappers in that Fult rebuttal they mentioned the, the potential that there was kind of migration between the, I guess, easternmost extent of the Western lineage and the Apalachicola. I, I'm not sure that I was buying that because that's a pretty. That was the distance. stream I was referring to. So yeah. he was saying that he was referring to that stream, but it's solidly part uh -huh. of the um, Chocolachi. Okay, yeah, because I mean, their reasoning behind that, just to begin with, I, I wasn't aware that the stream, that was the case, but the reasoning behind it just wasn't really believable to begin with in terms of, yeah, that would mean they'd have to go about 70 miles in the in the ocean, right, to, to get, yeah, uh, that's but, not, uh, I don't think that's happening with them, like, yeah, some, it's interesting, that's like the distance between the Swanee and the next big drainage is like, I think the next big drainage is the Steinhatchee or something, which is also really far from anything that potentially has Apalachicola. Like once you get to the Aklakoni, there's a several drainages right next to it that, that they do have turtles in there, but they're just not studied. Like they've been caught in there. We don't know anything about their population size. I think, I think you told me, Greg, that they, that like Kevin and them caught one in the Wakula or something and uh, that they do exist in there, but those drainages are all so close together. It, it makes sense. 
But once you get like 50, 60, 70 miles of, of ocean between them, that's, I don't really think they could cross that effectively. Yeah, most of the ones that I've seen documented that have been found on a beach or in the ocean, they beach themselves and they're super highly stressed. They're basically shut down. Um, they're overloaded with, you know, salinity and stuff like that. I mean, they, they do get them occasionally in brackish estuaries, but it's usually really old individuals and the population's just super low out there. Like they really don't, even though they can handle brackish water, it's definitely not preferred habitat and definitely, you know, movement through the, the open ocean once they reach it is, is definitely limited as well. All right. Well, we're coming up on time for questions here, but we've got one more, I guess, uh, Greg, in terms of, I, I'm curious what like the most, if you had to pick one turtle trip you've taken, what would be like, what's the most memorable and then any future plans uh, that are significant that, uh, that you're looking forward to? Um, I mean, if I'm going to pick best turtle trip, I'm going to definitely go bang for my buck. And that is going to Mississippi and herping with Grover. I mean, when you go to that part to of beat. the U.S., that is just, I mean, that's the, the mecca for turtles there. I mean, the highest diversity. I mean, just so much stuff to see. Um, I hadn't, um, I hadn't actually looked for turtles in that area before. So that was, I mean, it was fantastic. I was able to get like lifers. Like I caught a smooth soft shell turtle. I never thought that I would catch one of those with my, my bare hands, uh, lifer, Southern painted turtles, um, Gibbons eye map turtles, razorback. I mean, just so many things that were so new. Um, and then it was, you know, snorkeling and it just, every single part of it was so, so fun, so amazing. And it just all, it just, everything just kept happening. It was, there was never a dull moment. Um, so that definitely was my, Probably my favorite turtle trip for sure. Um, and then what I'm excited for, um, I'm excited to continue the alligator snapping turtle trapping in addition to just going out and herping. Um, I would like to do a trip um, up the East Coast. I'd like to come visit, you know, where Jack uh, finds diamondback terrapins. I'd also like to visit maybe a couple captive collections, uh, Anthony and Chris Leone. Um, and then other than that, you know, just just kind of keep doing what I've been doing and trying to refine it, make it better, make it interesting. Um, just keep kind of sharing, you know, turtles with people as best I can. You got to come out west. I can. I will find some pond yeah. turtles, and desert tortoises at some point. Yeah, I know, people. and I've got a bunch of buddies out there in the skate industry and stuff that you know they always ask when I'm gonna come out there to go skate and all that stuff. So. Um, I definitely want to go out there and, and be able to enjoy both of my interests while I'm out there. For sure. Yeah, All if right. Well, the, if you come up the East coast, there's, there's actually a, like in the summer, there's, there's a lot of really, uh, good things we could find up here. Plus, like you said, people, uh, Anthony, Chris, Maurice, there's all kinds of people up here. So, Oh yeah. Maurice is the best. Yeah. No, his, you know, some even more spots to find things, but. Yeah. So Jason, I think you've got some viewer questions. We did a little viewer question. And then after we play a little game at the end. So I'll explain that after we get some of the viewer questions. Yeah, I'm pulling them up here in a second. All right, um, I gotta play some music. Ken, are you in uh, Athens right now? No, I'm I'm actually in Alpharetta right now, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm still in, yeah, so you, still in high school. 
All right, I got him pulled up here if you want to get going. It's been so good. The first question is uh, from Garcia Reptiles 42. Um, I think we did kind of cover it, but it was thoughts on the allig on alligator snapper and uh, common snapper hybrids. Um, I think we kind of uh, I mean, Yeah, yeah. I mean, my then, thoughts, uh, you know, I, oh, oh, go ahead. Uh, if, if you want to give your thoughts, I'll, I just had the second question ready when you're good to oh, go. Yeah, my, my thoughts are, you know, we've already kind of covered it, but um, in summary, I would just say that um, not likely to see or, you know, find that in the wild. Um, in captivity, I think, you know, it's always better for captivity to move in the direction of captive breeding. So, if people are captive breeding, even hybrids, you know, they're not taking stuff out of the wild, which, you know, there's benefit in that. Um, obviously you wouldn't want hybrid animals released into the wild. I mean, you really don't want anything released into the wild that's, that's captive, but, um, you know, I have my personal opinion that if you're going to focus on captive breeding, do it in a way that goes in a helpful direction. I think hybrids are, you know, they're, for me, they're a novelty, um, for some people, I think some people maybe look at them as a way that, oh, I can't have an alligator snapper, but I can have a hybrid. But most places I think legally still will treat it as the, you know, protected animal. So I don't know, we'll see how all that stuff plays out. Uh, but, you know, at the very least, a super fascinating animal to observe. Right on. Uh, so Parker Gibbons has a second question uh, and he asks, how, health, how healthy is the AST population in the northern parts of their range? Um, what's Ooh. up, Parker? I love Parker. He's a cool kid. Um, so in my opinion, from what I've observed and in, in the northern part of their range, so we'll say uh, where I've been in the upper Suwannee, we, we get a, a good amount of turtles in the upper Suwannee. Obviously, you're talking small tributaries sometimes you know, a stream that's six or seven feet wide, sometimes, you know, 18 inches deep. Um, we get them in that, we get them in the rivers. Um, and then when you go upper Flint river, um, nobody, the thing with the upper parts of these tributaries and in the Northern part of the range is when they were commercially trapping, they were focused on the honey holes and what was good. And, and also being close to the, um, the I 10, so I-10 is where they were shipping them to Louisiana to butcher them for Campbell's soup. So they needed to be close to that highway. And that highway runs through the southern part of the state and uh, through, you know, northern Florida. So they were really trying to, is basically, when you're, when you're doing a job, right, you don't want to do more work for less money, right? So you're not going to go north where you're probably, and especially in people's minds back then, they, there's little or no population. They're going to focus on lower Flint river. It's big, it's wide. You can get multiple boats in there. Your refrigerated truck can wait by the dock. You know, you can shuttle back and forth, checking your traps, move the turtles, truck takes off. Another one comes up, you know, everything's, you know, functional. When you get up into the Northern part of the range, it takes four hours to get to I-10, four or five hours to get to I-10 from the Northern part of the range. It's not economically feasible for a business. So nobody really looked for them there. They also thought they were a coastal plain only species. They thought that the fall line was somehow magic and that they just wouldn't come past that. Um, and so it's been a great thing above the fall line. They have, you know, robust populations. There's a handful of locals in a lot of areas that may know that they've been there. 
um, and have had a negligible impact for the most part. Uh, you go to the next set of rivers over the Chattahoochee and then you go to uh, over Birmingham, upper part of the Mobile River. They are there. The further north you get those rivers, the temperatures get a little bit cooler and a little bit cooler as you get close to the source where they come out of the, the mountains. So um, temperature does seem to impact the densities. Um, again, that's why they're more dense the, the further south you get. But I believe most rivers where people have looked for them and then ended up finding them, you know, the Alabama Turtle Project, they, they get new individuals every single year when they're trapping in the same spots. Um, so they're finding that, you know, in the northern part of the state, they're getting alligator snapping turtles. So um, the, the kind of ignorance in trapping during the commercial period has really been a benefit to those animals. One thing, uh, just something quick I was going to add to that is like, so like there's still kind of, there's been some work lately, like in the real northern parts of the Westerns range, all the way up into Illinois and all that. Uh, it's still not as much, but there are records of massive individuals, even from up there, not very often, but this one like tributary in Illinois, like one of the farthest northern localities you can find them in. Apparently like there, there's a picture floating around. It's like stuck in a, it's one of these turtles in a tub that like they'd always stick them in there. And uh, was it was supposed to be 170 pounds. And I don't really doubt that based on the picture, but it was at least a huge turtle. And they caught it and like someone was fishing and just hauled that out of the river. And uh, I mean, it's just a classic looking Western, but it always raises the questions like, how common are they up there actually? And it must be somewhat, it must be good habitat if they can get that big. And uh, Pritchard used to think they would just wander upstream their whole life, but that yeah. doesn't really make any sense. Well, you know, they're, they're one of the most, if not the most cryptic large reptiles in the world. Um, you can have them, you can have a creek run through your backyard and you can live there your entire life and never see one if you don't know what to look for. If you don't go out at 4 a.m. with, you know, a headlamp and a flashlight, you're probably never going to see them, you know. And even though like a hundred pound turtle sounds big they can cram themselves and fit themselves under things and they can be so, you know, well hidden and um, just so in tune with their environment. You, you just, you'd never know they were there. So I think, um, you know, the, I think Illinois was doing a survey a year or two ago and they were looking for their radio track turtles and they ended up finding a, a naturally occurring wild adult female, which was like a huge find for them. And they weren't even expecting that to be there. Yeah, that, that was, I think I saw that was like a 50 pound female or something like mm -hmm. a pretty decent sized one. It's, uh, it's hard to put into words the experience too. I mean, we were out there with Greg in early July, uh, this year uh, or last year. And, uh, we were not finding much And about three in the morning. I think we, we, we're coming around the corner on a little kind of path to the, the forest and greg turns around he's like there's one and just darts in there and jack and i are sitting on the bank for like five seconds we couldn't tell what was going on and then we see you pull it up and it was a massive 90 pound male big big one in there so it's just hard to put into words that experience it, it's just yeah amazing I, i'm not a, i'm not a fan of that particular individual he broke my ribs one night with noah I was trying to get him over a tree and he pushed himself backwards and those marginals went into my ribs and, and broke them. Um, and I, I, and I think I was, I think I told you guys this, that that year when I caught that male, he was so well fed. He filled like, he felt like he was filled with gold bars. He was just impossibly heavy. 
Um, and I think when I caught him with you guys, it was like, he was a good bit lighter. Um, so there's like a lot of fluctuation in weight with those guys, but yeah, I caught him and I was like, ah, it's, it's this guy. <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful it a animal. All right. Well, we've got, um, we've got a little game we play at the end. I can explain this quickly here and we okay. can get right into it. But so we like to do a little kind of trivia at the end and I guess we can go, uh, guest and guest versus the hosts i guess uh just a little friendly trivia match so we both come up with five questions about something that's turtle related uh and then just ask each other and just we can just trade off uh five questions it's got two minutes to come up with something i guess and uh just anything you want the goal here obviously is to i guess uh teach people just pull out the most random stuff possible and 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 kind of get some stuff that wouldn't necessarily make it in the normal conversation so uh i'll set my two minute timer i'll get the ambient music going here and uh we can uh get going So just five, I guess, five questions on each end here, and we'll come up with something. We... All right, boys, what are we thinking? I got two questions already. Oh, am I supposed to be coming up with questions for you guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah we each come oh, up with five okay. questions. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, okay. us four, we'll get some, and then you'll get some. And, uh, don't feel like, go with, like, absurd and crazy as you want with them because that's what we, that's what everyone else is that's kind of what we've been doing but we try to tailor them to the topic okay this is this is good this is good television right here all of us writing stuff down <laughs> i know this, yeah, this yeah. is this is where you put your turtle room commercial yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, once yeah, I get yeah. my Actually, questions, I'll, I'll. Yeah, I'll, it should be like Anthony and Chris playing basketball right now. It, it, it just pans to like a like no music or anything, just like a camera of them just going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. Okay, I've got one. This I think you'll know this one. Okay, I'm trying to keep this like related, not go crazy here. Uh, I got, I got two. I sent to the chat. Wake up. Just send them to the chat, and then we should be good here. All right. Okay, we got Ken or Jason with one. I'd like to shout out to our sponsors of this episode. No. <laughs> I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Ray Shadow Legends. <laughs> Go with like a 20 minute ad. Uh, Jason and Ken, we'll come up with Jason, one. Jason, you ready? Um, 
Maybe like if, if you one of you two want to come up with another one, not going to lie, like my brain's just been focused on like Ohio amphibians and fish and stuff oh, for like school, right. school related reasons. So I, I having a hard time here. Wow. You're good. Well, I, I have family in Kentucky. That's kind of close. Kind of. Yeah, that's like... Uh, I, might, I might be able to, to you talk could about throw like in. Jason, maybe you could know. throw in something like from that area, kind of spice up the questions. I mean. Right on. Okay. I, is it cool if I like throw in a frog question? Is that too far out yeah. of left field? Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Oh, actually, Ken, that's a good question. I think I know the answer, but I... I Huh. Oh, yeah, actually, that is a good one. the answer. So, wait, am I supposed to type them, or I wrote them on the back of a card? Oh, yeah, no, yeah, we're yeah. only we'll typing them, so we have a reference to speak to. That's Okay, okay. All right, I think so. Or, okay, I think, yeah, Jason can throw one in. I guess we got, we got six this time. <laughs> you good to go there? Yeah, I put one in, so All right, we have good. five. All right, so we can start this, I guess, Greg, if you want to go first. Oh, okay. So do you want me to do all five or just one at a time? We kind of do one and back and forth. Sure. All right, so my first one I kind of borrowed from you guys, but I know that you guys, um, Jack and Michael, I know you guys take trips. Uh, Ken, I've seen that, you know, you go herping. So um, I'm going to ask, what is your best trip slash field experience? Uh, I guess I can answer that for, I mean, it's going to be varied between us, but for me, there's like several different things. Like finding that, uh, that alligator snapping turtle last summer was definitely one of the best things I've ever done. And, uh, then the recent, that was definitely one of the best. And just that whole trip, we just found a lot of species I'd always wanted to see and never gotten to see until then. Like we saw some peltifer and, uh, I think I found more Florida soft shells along the way there or something. But uh, that and then the turtle survey I did back with and uh, the turtle survey from a few months ago, that was insane. There, so things like that have really been just the best for me lately. I'm sure everybody has different answers, but. Go ahead. I I was waiting for you, Michael. I just thought you had something to add. <laughs> I, the Southeast trip was fun I, I think like i have to say the madagascar trip is probably that's going to be hard to well beat yeah terms of, but that was probably my fate but the south in the U, united states by far the southeast trip we took this this summer i shouldn't be too long and i might be able to get out to the galapagos and then that might take the cake but uh yeah the experiences in the southeast by far are the best Ken, Jason, rapid fire. Uh, yeah, real quick, yeah. I guess uh, last uh, year I got to go up to like the Toledo area and I got to see northern map turtles for the first time, which was really crazy. And it's kind of cool, too, because uh, I was like up there looking for Blandings turtles. And uh, we were coming uh, up on this like trail that ran along some river. And my mom, she looks over at the river and she's like, are those common snapping turtles because their heads are so big? And I'm like, I, I don't know. It's like it's it's a river. I, that's Yeah. So I look over and sure enough, like there's just a crazy number of uh, northern map turtles like bobbing up. Luckily, I was able to find some that were uh, basking on a log to actually get some decent photos of. But just seeing like a Grapnomies uh, and in like the home state was just I was ecstatic. Um, so that's probably like one of the highlights of my herping adventures. That actually yeah. quick thing. The very similar thing happened to me and that was last summer. 
I went to New Jersey, only an hour and a half, two hour drive from my house. My whole life, I'd wanted to see Northern map turtles. Never actually really. We saw one in Alabama, but it was way, it was way far away. I couldn't really, I don't even know if I got a good look at it before I went in the water, but we went down this river in like in the Delaware river drainage in New Jersey. And, uh, they're all over those small creeks, like on both the Pennsylvania and New Jersey side, like they're feeding the creeks look like perfect habitat. It's crystal clear, like mountain fed, like waters. And uh, we, we caught tons of tons of them. And it was just, that was an awesome experience. But Yeah. I would I'd love to go on a trip with you guys. And I, I, I've yet to see a wild alligator stabbing turtle. That'd be perfect to see. Um, in retrospect though, I think, one of my favorite trips is actually just here in here in Atlanta. Uh, I was having a, a slow herping day walking through the swamps. And then when I got to the banks, I looked down on the grass. There was two common snapping turtles. They were actually like mounted on top of each other on the banks, which is, you know, really bizarre because typically they mate in water. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, I tried to take a photo of them, but they, they scurried off and they got scared. That was, I want to see that behavior again. That was really weird. That's awesome. Yeah, sometimes you'll get two males just locked in combat and they'll be completely oblivious. And then, yeah, same could be mating as well. Because, you know, the female, for the most part, snapping turtle mating is not super consensual. So usually the female's just trying to get away. Yeah, the males. Not All right. Jack, did you want to hit him with our first question here? No, yeah, I'll just say, uh, this is, I think this is my fault. There, I, I think I didn't explain this well enough, or I don't know, but it's like we, we have like five or six like trivia questions. But it, so if you wanted to like quiz us essentially, but I don't know if that's. I'll ask most question. We'll just go from there. Oh, like okay. ask like the scientific name of something. I guess. I mean, you'll see. Like, I we'll, we'll ask one of ours, and then you'll get an idea for. Okay. Kind of how. Okay. <laughs> okay. Who wants to go? I I came up with this one. I said until last June, from which drainage did the pretty much undisputed largest macrochelys on record by carapace and skull measurements uh, come from? There wasn't a weight, but. By carapace and skull length, nothing else was close. Um, I'm pretty sure that would be a Sewanee drainage turtle, as yeah. far as what I know is has you know been at the CRI and yep. um, what I've read on in literature. So, yeah, it's that one. The carapace length from that turtle is cited in papers everywhere, but they don't. Ha there was never a weight for that one, so they just pull weights from captive turtles and uh, yeah. pair it with that carapace length, but. Yeah, we don't, I, I still have, are kind of. They haven't actually finished the. Sorry, I mean they. I was just saying, like, yeah, the captives. Like, I, I typically with captives, I don't, I don't really take much stock in. You know, anybody can fatten a turtle up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there um, hasn't been the weight hasn't been published for that two hundred pound uh, alligator, like Western. So until we, like the the morphological data, so that one might not even be this long, but it might be longer. I don't know. We'll see. All right, Greg, hit us up with one. Uh, well, now that you asked like a serious scientific one, I asked, uh, I asked stuff I just thought was going to be funny. Um, <laughs> That's fair too. Yeah, I, mean, you can take it. yeah. I just was going to ask, what is everybody's worst experience with a turtle? Like getting bit, getting uh, okay, it's falling into funny. the water, you know, whatever. I'll oh, I, I can go real quick. Okay. Sorry. So, um, so, so last summer, um, I was like, 
out in this little lagoon area in my neighborhood, uh, just I my like not smart ass or whatever, like brought out uh, my DSLR and I was like gonna try and take uh, photos of just the Midland painted turtles on my kayak. And I got close enough to one to where I was like, oh, I, I think I'm in reachable distance, right? So I went to grab it and I just completely drowned my camera. So I had to like run back. Luckily I was able to like salvage, uh, I don't even think I was able to salvage anything, but that was like, that was kind of sucked. That was, you know, a few hundred dollars down the drain, but it happens, you know? Jason, that happened to me. That That's how I really? lost my first camera lens. Yeah. It was a, it was a giant female soft shell that I tried to grab and I just kind of fell in the pond. Yeah. <laughs> and your phone. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I also lost my uh, old phone when I was with Michael at the uh, UGA Odin Pond, the, the river cooter that's in our, uh, that's in our icon right now. I dropped my phone while trying to catch her. So <laughs> don't have good experiences the, with catching turtles and technology. Yeah. One of the worst for me, uh, I found this red-eared slider just crossing a part of the highway around here. No water anywhere nearby. Just an adult, healthy, gravid red-eared slider just crossing the road. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to take this home. And uh, I don't want her reproducing in this because there's a pond here, like, south of me that is just full of sliders but this was nowhere near that and i'm like i don't want the slider plague to spread too much farther here so uh i just decided to take her home and that was the meanest most like awful turtle i've ever experienced one time i was on a call with one of our other friends and i was i was like i was not i was multitasking i wasn't paying attention i was cleaning out the cage and i had the slider in my hand and she like turned around and bit my finger like you see the knuckle like right here she managed to bite the skin and go through it in both directions. Like both the, the cusps on both ends went through it and she would not let go for like 20 minutes. And it was the most horrible pain. Eventually I had to just like rip my skin out and she just tore it. Like it, it was just a most horrible wound. And uh, yeah, I think like one other experience kind of just similarly as bad is I had just found the most perfectly preserved painted turtle shell. Like, beautiful all the color and everything was preserved and i was right by some rocks and i was i went to go after this water snake that went in the rocks and like something out of a cartoon i just watched like i moved this rock out of all the places it could have went the painted turtle shell was sitting there and it just it just rolled over and just completely just obliterated the turtle shell i was so i was like okay that was depressing but i think the funniest one i ever saw was when we were with kevin brazy a few years back we pulled out a slider there was a slider in the canal and he was trying to figure out it was a weird looking slider i, I don't think it was an integrate or anything but it just had a weird pattern and he was trying to figure out what was going on with it and he rotated it to the point jack and wyatt were off somewhere else i was standing right there and he rotated it right where he wasn't paying attention and it bit right straight on his nipple and it was <laughs> it was hanging there for like two minutes and he's trying to get it off and he just doesn't know what what he has to do and he's just like he was so laid back and he's just like oh man I just like, that, was so funny. that was hilarious it's funny because we all know kevin so that makes it better yeah yeah but uh yeah that was hilarious uh, for me personally i when we were at madagascar we were cutting we were cutting open the dead there were very few dead tortoises, but there were some of them just in the confiscation that big. You're going to have that. And we were dissecting them to look at what caused it. And I was cutting it open. Like anyone who you actually have to use a chisel to get the bridge to break. So you've got to chisel the bridge. 
and I was using a scalpel on the bridge and I, it sliced my hand. I had, so that was a little bit scary. That's probably the worst experience I've had because I was trying to get that unnotched and I, I wasn't as good with that kind of thing as I am now, but that's for me, I guess. Um, all right. We can go to the next question for Greg here. Oh, from me. All right. Or, I don't know if we wanted to ask. Michael, one. do you want me to just ask my other one and then we'll sure. go down like that? Yeah. All right. Uh, which two Western drainages have three Sympatric Sternothera species? Um, the Pearl or the, the Pascagoula for sure. Um, the. It's those two, but I think there's others. The Pearl, the Pascagoula, and I'm trying to remember the other one. Well, I think you had it, the Pearl and uh, Pascagoula, but. Oh, I thought you said which three. No, I said two. You had those two. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I thought you said three more, drainages. I know it's like... at least those two. Yeah. And you yeah, because those uh... have Peltifer. Yep. They got a weird assemblage. They got the Odoratus, Peltifer, and the Carinatus, so it's like. Yeah. The odoratus are normally at the bottom, but now they're even lower on the totem pole. With they got yeah, even less to pick from. You almost never see them together. I think Grover found one place where you can find Peltzfer and the Carinatus together. So it's kind of interesting. It's tech, they only like uh, it's technically possible, but doesn't really happen. <laughs> yeah, All they right. partition the habitat. Go ahead, Greg. Hit us up with the next. Um, let's see. Um, I'm just going to go off the top of my head. Um, I had a good one. Um, oh, it was, uh, dude, I'm, I'm getting old, so I forget stuff. Uh, it was like right there. Uh, it was based on like a paper that just came out. Oh, okay. So this is what I was going to ask you guys. So the U S fish and wildlife service has announced they have plans to protect, um, give threatened listing to the Pearl River map turtle. What other map turtles are going to be listed based on similarity of appearance? I mean, I guess, like, do you want the species or just the group? Um, it's like, uh, I think in the, in the announcement from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, I think they announced uh, three other species oh. based on similarity of appearance. I mean, is it... Is it other? It's going to be others in the megacephalic clade, I'd assume. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, like uh, maybe Polkra, Gibbons Eye, Ernstai. I, I might have missed one. I'd like if it was three, then I don't. Yeah, actually, sorry. Three. It's sorry. Yeah, now that you said that, it's actually four. Oh, so, so Barbarai too, or yeah, yeah. So yeah, they're going to list um, Gibbons Eye, obviously, because Gibbons Eye and Parlensis look almost identical. Um, and then out from that, Polkra, and then Ernstai, and then even Barbarai, which to, to most of us, you know, we can tell the difference. Um, but I guess for, you know, from a legal perspective and people inspecting stuff, they, you know, they, they can't tell the difference. So they're just going to list all of them kind of under one thing. All right. Yeah, I think get... that's, that's an interesting, like, topic. I mean, it's like, yeah. Some people, there's a lot of different feelings on that. And... Michael, yeah, well, did you want to get into uh, yours? Maybe we can try and sure. do a bit of like a, a speed. 
Sure. Yeah, we can do yeah some speed. Okay. So, um, all right. So, how many species? This one's kind of related to the last one. How many species of graptomies are there? This one's also, I guess, like anything in the range because you know that kind of thing changes a lot. But yeah, roughly. You're gonna have make me like I didn't memorize that fact, so I'm gonna have to like count them in my head. But you got like. Well, this would be a good time to bring. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just ballpark it and say twenty, and I know I'm gonna be wrong because twenty is too round of a number. But I'm just gonna say twenty. So I, I've seen fourteen cited. Okay, but, yeah, but, but I guess like yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, are are they are they separating the black knobs or are they lumped into one? Because remember there was Delta Cola and Negronota. I guess then- taxa taxa might be closer to 20 but 14 yeah. i think 14 species okay but I, yeah that's i think it's around it's around 14 yeah. but anywhere in the bottom yeah uh okay i guess uh i can just go to the next question we can just okay. clean out our questions and then we can go to back to if if you want sure. let, let's go well i'll pass it on to you great hit, hit us with the next one greg hey you guys with another one yeah um okay um uh, what is the newest recognized species of musk turtle? Intermedius, right? Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, sorry. I, <laughs> I yeah, you beat me to it. All right. So, uh, okay, Michael, do you want to do like your uh, – this is our fourth one, right? Sure, yeah. Let, let's just go with uh, Jason. You and Ken do it. We're, we're good. Okay, Um. I could go first, I guess. So, uh, what's the uh, genus and species name of the pickerel frog? Uh, Lithobates. Um, Halfway there. I've got them in my backyard, uh, literally. They were calling the other day. Um, Did I give up? I I can't remember. It's uh, Lithobates palustris. So, you almost had it. Yeah. Is that is there still like a southern and a northern also? I'm unsure. Okay. All right, Greg. Fifth question. Um, let's see, I had on uh name a species of tortoise that builds a nest. Oh. Minoria, uh like Emmys, like isn't it don't they build nests? I think Yeah, pretty much any Minoria will build a nest. So you, you had like three possible options there. Yeah, they'll like build it and like defend it too, like, which is which is yeah. very unusual. <laughs> I just remember right, that. Man. Your turn, that was Ken. Hard. Which uh, taxon of painted turtles have the worst tolerance to oxygen deprivation? The painted turtles? Yeah, which taxon? This is like the oxygen depth, the worst tolerance to oxygen deprivation. I would probably probably go with the dorsalis. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, yeah, they uh, you know, it's being in the southern part of the range, they don't need hibernate, yeah, or brumate, you know, as long as the other groups, right? Yeah, all right, I think we're we're good to go. Uh, well, thanks for coming on, Greg. This has been awesome. Uh, we you know, I think this is a great discussion and, uh, 
I guess I can turn over to guys for any last thoughts here. And if you want to say anything. I... Yeah. Thanks guys. for coming on. I know it's been like nearly two hours of your time, but we do really do appreciate you. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah been my we try to keep it. Guys yeah. me. We try to keep it under um, an hour and 30 minutes. But it's, it's hard to keep it like that when we have you here. So. Oh, yeah. Have, sorry. Have I mean, I, you know, I get going and I can, I can keep going, you know, Michael and Jack have, have been around me and they know that you know kind of once you open it up it just keeps coming out so yeah oh yeah it's like we could all i think several like we could go on all day if like time was it every day we could just, <laughs> just there's there's there's, there's there's no limit to how much we could talk about and what detail we could get into with it but no uh, it, it's just endless that's but... like that's actually the most difficult part of doing this is like oh we have plenty of time to do it but then like you get yeah. carried we get so deep if only it, school like, and crap. work wasn't a thing yeah, 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 exactly. I, I was going to say, we're trying to make it down to the Santa Fe uh, project next week. So we all have to <laughs> get stuff tightened up. But um, yeah, thank you so Let much. Let me know. I can me. maybe try and make the drive. Oh, actually, yeah. I was yeah, going to say, if you could, like, uh, I think, the, yeah, man, we'll, actually, we'll talk more about that off the recording. Like, yeah, sure. let's do it. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for coming on. I got to just plug the turtle room right now. We, uh, are officially going to announce our uh this is the first time we've talked about this but we are partnered with the turtle room and they're generously sponsoring us um they're they've given us access they're they're kind of covering the cost of this program uh anthony and steve the guys that kind of the 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 brains behind that operation are amazing guys and uh just just awesome and super supportive so we're really happy to um be working with them we're also going to be setting up a we're calling a Colonia Cast student fund where we're going to be taking a donation box through their website to build up a fund over time for potentially sponsoring student research. So um, that should be cool. But it's not up yet. But when it is, we'll talk about that and and, and we'll bring that here. But uh, thanks again to Greg from Greg's Turtle Haven for coming on. Make sure to check out his YouTube page and Instagram. Uh, a lot of cool stuff up there. And um it's been a pleasure. So thank you. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you guys. All right.